Hello, welcome back to another episode of Banter, a podcast brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C. I'm Max Frost, and I am not in Washington, D.C. We're recording this remotely. I'm in Glens Falls, New York, in northern New York's Adirondacks. And I'm Matt Winesett, joining you from Centerville, Virginia. We were joined this episode by Lyman Stone. You called in from Hong Kong. Lyman is an adjunct fellow at AEI, where he studies demographics, and lately he's been writing a lot about coronavirus and specifically the coronavirus lockdowns and how effective they are. Unfortunately, we recorded this episode last week, so we did not get to talk about the ongoing protests and riots across America and how those might affect transmission. But we learned a lot from this episode, and he really opens up a different way of viewing how the nation should respond to the ongoing pandemic. And finally, this is Max, too, recording from McLean, Virginia. Lyman's written some very nuanced data-oriented content on the coronavirus issue. And I think it's important to have that nuanced approach because we should live in a policy world where if you push back against the lockdown, you're not an unsympathetic, cruel person. But in reality, recognize that it's a policy balancing act that we're all trying to figure out. So without further ado, here is Lyman Stone. Governor Haley, thanks for coming in. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Mr. George Will, welcome. Glad to be with you. Arthur Brooks, welcome back. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Ambassador Wolfowitz, pleasure to have you. Nice to be here. Thanks. Ms. Peggy Noonan, thank you for coming. Guys, thank you very much for having me. Mr. Bolton, it's an honor for you to be with us today. Glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. J.D. Vance, welcome. Thank you for having me. Lyman, thank you so much for joining us on Banter. It's my pleasure. Glad to be with you. So you wrote an essay last month that got a lot of attention. It certainly got our attention. I think it was titled, Lockdowns Don't Work. Can you explain what you mean by that? Because that seems to, uh, when you say that out loud in public, people don't seem to like it very much. (laughs) So this was one in a a series of essays that I wrote, um, basically about um, what an effective coronavirus response looks like. Um, And I started by just saying that that ordering people to stay home was not a very effective way of reducing the spread of coronavirus, not because social distancing is not important, but because I argued essentially that lockdowns um, or or shelter-in-place orders or stay-at-home orders or whatever you want to say um, simply are not very effective at getting people to actually change their behavior. Um, That in fact, Uh, The most effective social distancing behaviors are things that people will mostly do voluntarily. Um, And uh, the things that the the marginal additions that people will add on when ordered to socially distance um, don't don't actually seem to be that important. So were the countries that have enacted these huge uh, lockdowns, uh, we haven't had a federal one in the U.S., but state by state or the U.K. or Italy, Spain, do you think that that's the wrong decision and the proper approach would have been more like what Sweden did? So I understand why countries tried lockdowns. I get it. There, we were in a new situation. People didn't quite know what was happening. Lockdowns, they do have an intuitive appeal to them, right? If social distancing is a problem, we should just order people to do it, right? I, I get that. So I understand why countries did this. I, I don't want to be too critical of the the decision to try this strategy. Now, I am critical of remaining uh, in this strategy for going on three months now, uh, but, but I understand why it was tried. At the same time, I, I, don't, 
I've never been a partisan for Sweden's approach either. Sweden's death toll has been one of the one of the highest in Europe, and I I suspect that that is actually somewhat related to their policy choices. Um, saying that we shouldn't have a lockdown is not saying that there's no role for government. Um, there are productive things that governments can do. They can speedily declare emergencies. President Trump dilly-dallied in declaring a state of emergency. Um, he took way too long to do that. There's a lot of evidence that declaring a state of emergency is an important signal uh, to people to begin voluntarily distancing. Um, school can be kept closed for a long time. Most states have canceled school through the end of the school year. Um, I think that that's appropriate. That was a prudent choice. They probably should have done so earlier. Um, not because kids transmit the disease a lot, but because that's a way that you sort of force families to adopt various kinds of socially, social distancing measures. It gives them a little bit of flexibility to choose what kind of social distancing they want to, pra want to practice, but it pretty much forces employers to adjust. And it, but at the same time, the most important thing a government can do isn't about social distancing at all. Uh, it's about um, setting up contact isolation programs. So most of the, uh, several of the articles I've written have actually been about this, that it's not about social distancing. It's about contact isolation, which means uh, tracing outbreaks and identifying infection, possibly infectious people and isolating them as rapidly as possible. Lyman, in one of your recent pieces, you talked a little bit about what contact tracing and contact isolation might look like. And for those in the audience who didn't read those pieces, you, you talk about basically once somebody tests positive, find their close friends and families and put them up in a government facility, pay for Wi-Fi, pay for basically food, drink, et cetera, mm -hmm. and then test them over the next few days. And then once they test negative, they can go home. So basically you contain spread that way. You consider that to be unfeasible at this point. I mean, just putting on masks in public has been such a controversy. It's raised questions mm -hmm. about individual liberty. Do you think we could actually in implement that on the federal level for all states? Uh, well, about 10 states are already doing it. Um, so I think it can be done. Um, now, the scale on which it would be ideal to do it, it's still being scaled up. I mean, even Maryland does this now. So uh, I don't, I, I, I think in most places it's generally voluntary still. I think it should be mandatory. Also, while I think it should be mandatory, I think we shouldn't just pay for people's food. We should actually pay them a wage. We should say, look, sorry, we've pulled you away from your life. We're going to compensate you like, you know, 75, 100, 100 bucks a day or something. And, uh, and that'll get compliance. People will sign up for that. People will people will, will ask to be, to be in that program. Also, when we say, I want to be clear, when we say government facility, pretty much everywhere that's doing this from, from Hong Kong to Hawaii is doing this in hotels. So when we say government facility, what we mean is the government booking hotel rooms. Now, some places you also have to use some other facilities. South Korea uses these like corporate training centers that they have. But, uh, but in most places, the, the main space being used is hotels. So we're talking about paying to put people in hotels um, and then testing them as fast as possible. People, people have all kinds of worries about this program. It, it calls to mind like a lot of people would be like, oh, you're going to put me on rail cars and send me to a COVID <laughs> concentration camp. 
<laughs> this is not what we're talking about. You know, we're talking about a very limited duration. Nobody's going to be there for like six months or something. Yeah. If you have severe symptoms, you'd be moved to a hospital, obviously. Um, because COVID is not an extremely high risk to kids, we could allow children to be in isolation with their parents. Now, of course, if parents wanted to have separate isolation for their kids, I think we should provide that. We should, we should provide the option for parents to protect their children. But there's, we don't need to separate kids. It's not a high risk to children. So we don't need to break up families. We're not sending people to like, you know, isolated desert facilities somewhere, right? Like none of this is, is, is what is, is actually happening. Well, you have me sold, but yeah, I think the problem is people are going to view this as if like the, at the end of the Kingsman 2 movie when all the drug addicts are sent to crates to remain in isolation until they get a vaccine. I mean, what do you think? This does this contact tracing idea. It seems obviously to work. It seems like a way to get out of the terrible lockdowns and move into a more sustainable way to contain this virus. But unlike the flatten the curve mantra, contract tracing has not seemed to seep into the public conscious as, as the next viable game plan here. How much of this do you think is just an American thing where, I mean, we can't even get people to rally behind wearing masks inside versus, I mean, is this basically is this unique to America where other countries can get behind this and, and we just can't for some reason? Or what do you think the main obstacle here is? So it's, it's not unique to America. Um, and I mean that in two different ways. One, as I mentioned, quite a few states are already doing this. So this is not something America cannot do. It is being it is happening. But secondly, we we've seen the same hesitancies across the Western world. This is something that, that the West generally has been hesitant to do. And the reason for this, I think, is because of this pernicious, destructive, and misleading slogan, flatten the curve. This was a terrible public health advice. Think about what we're saying. Instead of saying, like, we will fight it on the beaches, we will fight it on the seas, we are like, we will let it get here and we will make sure that by the time it infects the last person, our hospital system will not quite be totally overwhelmed. <laughs> like we will make sure that when we lose, we will lose slowly. That's what that mantra is. That it'll infect the same number of people. It'll just do it very, very slowly. We will make this crisis go on as long as possible. That's what flatten the curve is saying right? Flatten the curve is not aimed at actually reducing how many people get infected. It's just about flattening the curve. We're not reducing the area under the curve. We're just making sure that we spread out the infections so we don't overwhelm hospital capacity. That's the argument here. I don't know in what world someone thought that was a good argument, but that is the argument being made. And it's based on this idea that if we cannot overwhelm hospitals, that hospitals will save lives. That if we can get everybody into a hospital, ventilators will save them. The problem with this is that it turns out hospitals don't have a great strategy for saving lives. And going to a hospital does not dramatically reduce your odds of dying. So, furthermore, and furthermore, a lot of the people getting this are, are dying at home anyways. And so they're not going to a hospital. In most places, we're not seeing hospitals be overwhelmed. Um, and even when people do go to hospitals, there's, there's really limits to what we can do in terms of therapeutics at this point. 
So this whole approach was, was dumb. It was foolish. It, and also it wasn't supported by science. Um, there is no scientific paper. It's not like if you go to before COVID that there's like a mile high stack of peer reviewed literature showing that the optimal response to a respiratory contagion is lockdowns. Like those papers don't exist. <laughs> They're not there. It's not, the science didn't support this strategy. There is research on some things like, like school closures, there's research on, there's research on like mask wearing and PPE. There's research on um, contact isolation. There's research on public education efforts that is communicating to the public about the importance of, of various procedures. There's, there, there are like three papers looking at lockdowns and they find that they're like not that effective. So this whole approach was like, I don't know, some epidemiologists like drew a graph and thought it looked cool and like shared it on Twitter, I guess. And it went viral and suddenly this is what every Western country was doing. And no one ever thought to like look at this graph and be like, wait, this is the same total number of infections as the do nothing graph. But no, it's amazing how quickly people fell in line behind the flatten the curve thing. I mean, it just became the status quo that that's what you do. You flatten the curve, pandemic flatten the curve. Yet now we're starting to see, at least in my understanding of it, then the places that have opened back up, like Georgia and Florida, I think Florida in particular took so much heat for not shutting down quick enough than for opening up too soon. Yet in my understanding of it, the cases have not spiked the way people thought they would. Um, are you, am I reading the data correctly? Is that true that the states that have opened back up, you know, when many said was prematurely, um, have actually been okay? The rate of transmission of COVID, uh, so, okay, so it depends on what you mean by opening up. Um, discrete policy changes thus far do not appear strongly correlated with increases in caseloads. However, decreases in the extent of social distancing do appear to be associated with increases in transmission. What's going on here is just the changes, like reopening policies don't correlate that well with actual reopening. A lot of places are reopening without policy changes. And some places that are having, like that are coming out of lockdown are not having reductions in social distancing, okay? And this just goes to what I'm saying, that like the policy measures that states are taking are not the main driver of social distancing. So it does appear that re relaxations in social distancing are leading to increases in spread. That means there's likely to be a second wave because we're seeing relaxations in social distancing in some sense prematurely. But when I say prematurely, I don't mean because the lockdown has not gone on long enough, right? The lockdown has gone on quite a long time and it was probably not very useful to begin with. What I mean is any resumption of activity is premature if there's not a contact isolation program operating on a large scale. Mm -hmm. Until there is a contact isolation program operating, um, and unless people are wearing masks essentially universally when in public, resumption of activity is premature. But if mask wearing is essentially universal, and a contact isolation program is operating on a large scale, resumption of activity is, is appropriate, even if you have some, some public transmission. 
So lockdown, to the extent it has any purpose, is about buying time to set up these programs. But if a state, if a state is not hiring tens of thousands of contact tracers and setting up large facilities to house isolated people, then it should never come out of lockdown ever again. We should be in lockdown for 50 years. You know, well, I, I was going <laughs> to ask something similar, which is uh, similar to what you began to say at the end there. We don't even know how effective a vaccine would be for this. We don't know if this will be a virus that mutates and it's like the flu or the common cold and that you know, new strains and, and we, and you don't develop a lifelong immunity once you contract it. So isn't, shouldn't that be factored in at some point that we're taking all these drastic steps on, on an indefinite temp timeline and we don't even know if it will pay off in the end. I mean, we are incurring a lot of economic damage, a lot of health damage indirectly, a lot of social damage by all these measures and we're not even sure that there's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow here. So, I mean, how do you view that too, the scenario where a vaccine doesn't even help? Yeah, that's the scary scenario. Um, so uh, that's, that's a you know, nice, pleasant thing to think about. Um, you know, I think a vaccine probably will help. Um, but yeah, it's, it's possible that COVID is going to be with us for a while. If it's like the flu, then then once we figure out a vaccine to one strain of COVID, then it's likely that we will figure out a strategy for developing vaccines to to many strains of COVID. Uh, but but that would add to the challenge. But this speaks to the importance of contact isolation because the truth is, contact isolation is relatively non-invasive. Um, like here in Hong Kong, you know, life is pretty much normal. Our church is meeting. Um, the kids are still, the kids are going back to school. We have friends over. We go to see friends. We go to rest, restaurants never closed. The malls never closed. Life is okay. We can sustain this forever. And also we have, we have essentially zero infections now, despite the fact that we had a pretty considerable exposure through imported cases. So, uh, you know, contact isolation and masks work. This is what Japan did, this is what Korea did, this is what Hong Kong did. Uh, Taiwan mostly used travel restrictions, but to the extent that they needed to do anything, this is what they did. This strategy works. So, and it can be sustained for a long time. A society can keep a contact isolation running as sort of like a, like a social background process for years. So if this is gonna be potentially like, a five-year fight before we work out like multiple vaccines and all this stuff, then it's even more important that we roll out a contact isolation program. Yeah. I mean, it seems like everybody that wants, you know, the job guarantee stimulus for the hospitality industry, bailouts for the hotels and whatnot, this seems like a great game plan because it keeps people, tens of thousands of people employed and money constantly getting injected into the hotel industry. But, but I guess my nightmare situation isn't so much, that we don't find a vaccine or we don't get one that works. It's more that outside the think tank world, I just don't know if anyone's taking the contact tracing approach. I mean, there doesn't seem to be any movement, even from the White House, especially from the White House, to even tell people to wear, to wear masks or to ramp up contact tracing. 
Instead, what it seems like is just your average, just like my average Joe friends are thinking, okay, the lockdown's about to end. We can finally go out to bars again, go to the Lake of the Ozarks and party with 10,000 other people in, in a swimming pool. That's, and I just, it just seems like people are going to try to go back to normal with their, with, I mean, no matter what happens. So what do you think happens in that situation? I mean, is, are we just going to see cases explode again? And maybe- Yeah, I think it's likely that there will be a second wave. And uh, as more people die, I think that that strategy will become politically costly. And I think that a lot of states will go back into lockdown, um, which will be even less effective than it was the first time. But again, you know, I, I think there's a case for optimism here. We... We look at the federal government and we see inaction, but it's not the federal government's job. I think it'd be great in the federal government, you know, they, they have allocated money. States can choose to use this for contact tracing and for contact isolation, and many are doing so. Um, more need to do so. We should get more money allocated for that. But uh, um, this is a state choice. They have the power to do so. They have the resources to do so. Um, unfortunately, many states are refusing to do so. Louisiana, in their most recent budget proposal, has actually prohibited um, the use of, of funds for any mandatory contact tracing programs. So they're, they're undermining mandatory compliance. Um, now, you could still do voluntary compliance, I guess, but I, I don't even, I don't understand that. Like, what is the point in, in banning a mandatory, yeah, I don't know. It's it's ridiculous. And they're one of the more severe outbreaks too. But many, many other states are rolling out or hiring thousands and thousands of contact tracers. State The message is getting through to state houses. Um, and many are uh, are working hard at, at, at getting the requisite uh, infrastructure in place. So now one thing that's obviously been one of the most disputed and important topics about this is how deadly the coronavirus actually is. Um, have you done any research into that? Obviously, when it started, people were saying, oh, 3% of the people that get that die, 5%. Oh, the antibody test came out. Oh, it's actually 1 20th of 5%. Um, do you have a sense of where the number's settled now? And do you agree with whatever the status quo number is? Yeah, so all this uh, ser- uh, serology testing is in, in cases that have you know extensive testing rates um, that we think that we think can give us a good idea of um, of true infections. Um, it's pretty much all consistent with a an infection fatality rate between zero point five and one point five percent, which is about somewhere between five and a hundred times as high as influenza. So it just depends on exactly how you measure the influenza rate, which is another way of saying it's, it's, it's actually probably pretty similar to what influenza, what like a truly novel strain of influenza with no, with no immunity would be like, which is to say it's pretty similar to pandemic influenza, which is like the nightmare scenario that people have been worried about for a long time. Um, it's a lower infection fatality rate than the 1918 pandemic, um, but it's but it's higher than a lot of recent influenza pandemics. It's quite high. Well, I mean, I'm going to bring up the theme of personal liberty again, and let me 
I think this point is something that's shared by a lot of people privately. Maybe they're not tweeting about it or expressing it publicly because it might come off as insensitive, but I think a lot of people think it, which is, you know, this disease also disproportionately targets older people and people with pre-existing conditions. At what point should we consider, in understanding that individual decisions have group-based consequences, but at what point do you let healthy 25-year-olds make their own decisions and live normally if they choose to live normally and not bend 18 months or so of their lives potentially on something that truly does not pose that great of risk to themselves? I mean, people are constantly talking about all the risks we are willing to tolerate on a daily basis. At what point do we let people decide what risks they're willing to take for themselves, even though they have group consequences. This is America. We, you know, freedom is more important than anything else here. It's a great question. Um, so if you, uh, if you get on top of your house and you set a bonfire um, and you start to burn your house down, the fire department will come and put it out. And you will probably be found guilty of arson, even though it's your own house. Um, certainly your homeowner's insurance will not pay out. It's not legal to set your own house on fire. Um, it's actually a crime. And the reason for that is because fire is contagious. Fire spreads. Fire will burn down someone else's house. It imposes costs on society right? The fire department is going to come. They're going to save you. It's going to kill someone else. It's going to kill your neighbor. Um, this is an externality cost. We widely recognize that it is acceptable to have permanent, absolutist, and in fact, somewhat totalitarian restrictions on behaviors that impose lethal, immediate externalities, like infectious disease, fires, um, or another one would be like, uh, um, you know, setting off large explosives in your yard is generally illegal. Um, or you at least have to get permission. Uh, in some areas, like in very rural areas, you're allowed to set off explosives because the judgment is that there's not an externality there because you don't have any neighbors. So like growing up, we would remove stumps from our field by stuffing them with pipe bombs that we made. Um, which is a very effective way to get rid of a stump. It's also a lot of fun for a teenage boy. Um, and there's not an externality, but right, like in an urban area, if you make a pipe bomb and you blow it up in your yard, like you are in trouble, right? And that's not really something that's like a political debate. Everyone recognizes that like blowing up a pipe bomb in your apartment is not okay. Um, even if you are crazy and want to do it, you can't do that. Um, you know, even if it's legal to have a firearm, of course it is, it should be, you know, I have, well, not in Hong Kong, but in the US, I have a, an extensive array of, of uh, self-defense options, let's say. But, uh, you know, even so, in an urban area, you can't just like be in your apartment and be target shooting, right? Like, that's not legal. Um, now, in a civilized country, like in the UK or France, you can fire weapons in an urban area. You just have to have a silencer. Um, whereas in the US, we're like, oh no, you can't have a silencer. That's a criminal thing, um, which is absurd. You should, not only should you be allowed to have a silencer in an urban area, you should be required to have one. 
um, just for noise polite, just for politeness to your neighbors. But we, this is perfectly reasonable to have restrictions on severe negative externalities. We have fire codes, right? Fire codes are basically social distancing rules for fire. Um, it's saying you can't build a structure without obeying these rules. In the same way, we should be saying, if you get COVID, you're gonna be put in isolation for a couple weeks, right? We don't need to have permanent social distancing rules. We need to have permanent contact isolation procedures. I would say, you know, I understand the liberty concern and that's why we want contact, contact tracing and contact isolation because that's more liberty consistent. Um, but also society has rules like this that are not politically debated, that are widely accepted. Nobody wants their neighbor's house to not be up to fire code. Yeah, but gonna... there's a big difference between immediate lethal activities and then going to a bar without a mask on where the consequences are so much more indirect and so much more and so much less threatening than say some of the activities you highlighted. So it does seem like a bit of an apples and oranges comparison there. I don't think so. Setting a fire uh, probably won't burn down another house because if the other house is up to fire code, it's not highly flammable, right? They've taken protection measures. So the odds of contagion are not extremely high in the case of a fire because of modern building codes. So it actually isn't super high risk. Nonetheless, the reason it isn't super high risk is because we have extremely interventionist and coercive policies creating sort of a defense in deep. So because we're sort of constantly enforcing it on each measure, the risk is not that high. In the same way, the reason why it would not be that high risk for a 25 year old to go to the bar is because we have these coercive measures all throughout society. That is 25 year olds are being free riders. They're exploiting uh, the measures put in place on wider society. And in fact, society is subsidizing their behavior. This is not liberty. This is welfare for 25 <laughs> year olds. This is basically saying 25 year olds, we know that we are low risk. So even though our behavior creates contagion that will spread through society and infect others, even though many 25 year olds are workers in nursing homes, right? We're going to exploit our lack of vulnerability and just free ride on society's precautions. I would, I would add in that Matt Weinstein's haircut. He hasn't gotten a haircut since January. That alone is a negative externality. Um, I'm, look, I've sacrificed many things for my fellow man throughout this crisis. Lyman, you have ruined my fourth and side note, I would say that there is someone on my side on this. Anne Rand, uh, really? when asked about infectious disease, said that this was a case where it was reasonable for the government to infringe upon, upon civil liberties and force people into isolation. She specifically was asked about this and specifically said requiring isolation of, potential, of potentially infectious pe people was a reasonable infringement on liberty. So I'm gonna go ahead and say, if Anne Rand is on your side for government intervention, like anybody to the, to the like libertarian right of her is like insane. So that's what I'm gonna end on there. Well, you know, I think she also had her main character uh, commit some arson at the end of the Fountainhead to blow up apartment <laughs> buildings or something. So there's a, the metaphor might break down a little bit. I, uh, while we're on the topic of individual liberty, and we're, we're almost out of time, but since you are in Hong Kong and we're talking to you, 
right after all this news breaking about China basically removing a lot of the liberties and the U.S. no longer recognizing Hong Kong as functionally independent. What is the mood there? And, and what's it like being a Westerner? And, and how, concerned, how concerned are you, I guess, for your own liberties in Hong Kong? Well, you know, foreigners never have the same liberties as you never expect the same political participation as locals. So, you know, we haven't been highly involved in the the protests here just because as foreigners, we're, it's not, it's not our place mm-hmm. um, to be intervening in local politics. Um, as American, you know, we feel pretty safe. Hong Kong people um, like foreigners. It's a diverse pluralist society where, um, where foreigners are quite safe, but it is eye-opening to see a liberal society be crushed by totalitarianism right in front of our very eyes and the wider world um, is pretty much okay with that. Particularly corporate America is pretty enthusiastically allied with communism at this point. Um, The American Chamber of Commerce pretty much came out in favor of the communist boot heel on liberty. Um, And they said, you know, we really don't want to see the U.S. actually crack down. The biggest ally that communism has in America is American corporate executives because they don't want to see their investment opportunities crushed. They want to continue buying slaves from Xinjiang. Um, They want to continue uh, having the peace and quiet that comes from a jackboot on the neck of liberty. Um, And you want to talk about an infringement on liberty? This is is part of my, my sort of intolerance for sort of COVID bellyaching is that you've got all these people who who they're deeply concerned that that we can't get haircuts and you know where's the excitement for steaming a carrier group through the straits of taiwan because that's what we actually need to do trump is complaining about threats to liberty from not being able to go to a restaurant i don't see him getting on a plane to go shake hands with the president of taiwan to actually defend liberty you know there is a real threat to liberty there is a a global ideological movement afoot that is explicitly and publicly committed to rolling back liberal democracy throughout the world. I mean, China's not ambiguous about their objectives. They don't believe in, uh, in communism in one country. They want, they are explicit, their plan, they have a whole rhetoric based around. Um, this, this is not a Hong Kong thing. This is Hong Kong, India, Taiwan, the South China Sea, Korea. Um, Africa. They want to see their style of governance expanded throughout the world and liberal democracy discredited. And the U.S. is simply not anting up to the scale of the conflict. We are appeasing. So I would say um, I will believe someone will, I will believe someone cares about liberty when they are actually committed to discontinuing the decades-long policy of appeasement towards a violent, totalitarian communist state. Well, I mean, we, I can't disagree with anything that you're saying there. And I, from, I visited Hong Kong uh, a number of years ago, but I've been in China for several weeks. I remember coming to Hong Kong is such a breath of fresh air. And it's tragic to see what's happening there now because, I mean, it's an incredible place and tragic. Hopefully, hopefully our government can actually get some policies in place and actually do something here to fight for justice. But unfortunately, not holding my breath right now. In any event, thank you so much for coming on the show. We hope that you're able to um, stay safe and healthy over in Hong Kong. Sounds like they do have a better handle on this than we do right now. Um, so in that sense, I guess at least you're lucky to be there. Thanks. It's good to be with you.
Well, thank you all for joining us again, and thank you, Lyman, for calling in. It was 7 a.m. over in Hong Kong, so we really appreciate him calling in before his morning coffee to talk to us. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. We got another review last week from someone named I'm Just Doing My Thing over on iTunes, who says the hosts are well-prepared and ask excellent questions. I've listened to three episodes now and most recently to the one on identity politics. I was impressed by the host's attempts to engage in a dialogue around identity politics, even with Dr. Hoff Summers talking in circles and bouncing around topics with no logical flow. Look, I personally, as much as I appreciate the first part of that review, great first half, you know, I got to say, to give a shout out to our banter guest, Dr. Christina Hoff Summers, one of my faves. She, that's part of her charm, though, is she loves to bounce around subject to subject, hot potato, Mrs. America, identity politics, college, politics, college campus, everything. So, I mean, I get the point, but, you know, that's her charm. That's the style. Yeah, very wide-ranging conversation. We enjoyed it. We recommend you check that episode out, as well as all of our other episodes. In the meantime, we hope that everybody stays safe. Last week, it was just stay healthy. Now, it's stay healthy and safe, obviously, crazy times in our country and we hope that everything gets back to normal soon. And we are horrified by the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis last week. And it's important to remember that despite some of the troubling images and videos coming out of the protest, that most of the protesters are protesting as Americans trying to build a better future, simply that much. That is really why they're out there. They've had difficult personal experiences, a challenging history to, to come to terms with. And they're out there for good reasons. So with, you know, it's a tough issue and um, we just, you know, wishing the best and praying and thinking about the future of our country and looking forward to getting through this. That's right. We don't just want things to go back to normal. We need things to improve. Otherwise, this is just a cycle that will probably keep repeating itself. So we hope to be with you all again next week and we hope you tune in again. Till then, stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll talk to you again soon.